The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by LCHF Endurance. Stabilize your blood sugar, burn fat, decrease inflammation and become fat adapted in just 12 weeks. I'm so excited to share with you that LCHF Endurance is currently 50% off for a limited time only. Simply use the code LCHFE50 to sample the program, check out the kind of meals you'll get to eat, and cancel within seven days if it's not your sugar-free jam. Head to lchfendurance.com.au and use the code LCHFE50 for 50% off your upfront program payment today. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness and optimizing your health, metabolism and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 259 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Bill Giles, immunobiologist, yoga instructor, martial arts enthusiast, and advocate for people being responsible for their health through diet, exercise, and mental well-being. Bill and I explore the potential triggering of chronic illnesses as people age, the impact of plant-derived foods and drinks from a biological perspective, all about grains, including the long-term advantages of grain-free living, what inspired Deeks, and so much more. Hi, Bill, and welcome to the show. Well, lovely to talk to you, Steph. Thank you so much for your time today. I would love to hear more about your background to start as an introduction to our listeners, seeing as as it's your first time on the show. Oh, well, thanks, Steph. Um, How far back do you want to go? So uh, (laughs) if you want to be a little bit academic, five years engineering, seven years in science, focusing on biology, that's ecology, and eventually a little bit in medical research, and then 30 years as a clinical career as a biologist specialising in the human immune system. So that's the behaviour and the ecology of the immune system. Um, And paralleling that, as I was growing up, I did my nutrition studies in the mid-60s. I'm fairly old now. Um, you know, and a whole lot of stuff like oriental osteopathy and acupuncture. These things were just interesting things for me as I was a young biologist trying to put a whole lot of stuff together to try and answer the questions that I had about life. Um, like most, like many people my age, various questions. And so I ended up helping a lot of people. And my two principal areas that I've 
worked with over the last 30 odd years would be in the yoga school um, that I started up and then my clinic practice, which I'm still running. So there's a quick introduction to my background, Steph. You may have to ask me specific questions to, uh, to broaden that out. Yeah, of course. I'd actually love to hear more about the, your, your work around the biology of the human immune system and, and what you've really learned over your years. And I know you've done several thousand case studies. Mm, yes, okay. Well, immunobiology is behaviour and ecology of the immune system, whereas immunology is where you come into it from a, uh, being qualified as a doctor and then you look at the um, pharmaceutical responses um, principally on the immune system, how to shift and control the immune system. So I'm not an immunologist, I'm a biologist. Okay, um, it's always in my background, I was um, brought into medical studies. It started at the University of Queensland in the 70s and then John Curtin School later on where I was associated with a whole lot of research. Um, but in pri- when I got into private practice and then... I was trying to help people out who had chronic symptoms, some of the symptoms that I'd had when I was um, a little bit younger. And so when you look at particular symptoms, you have to go back to what's, what actually controls the body's growth um, from when you're born until when you die, say 100 years of age, uh, through 100 years. And that really is the two systems that work together, the nervous system and the immune system. Um, the nervous system principally is in the brain and then has the nerves going throughout the body and you have your musculoskeletal nervous system and you have your autonomic nervous system. Um, and that's interested in what's outside your body principally through your sense receptors, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, etc. trying to gauge um, where your body is in space and trying to keep it um, through your brain to keep it predictably safe and um, have a certain quality to life. Well, that's external. And then you have an internal system, which is your immune system. They're the only real mobile cells in your body, but they try and create um, homeostasis in your body through the red blood cells, feeding um, all the other cells oxygen, pulling out carbon dioxide, feeding, feeling nutrition, getting rid of problems. So that part of the immune system is trying to keep homeostasis. And then you have two other parts to the immune system, two groups of white blood cells, Um, One's called your ancestral immune response or innate immune response, and the other one is an adaptive immune response. Well, these cells, these mobile cells, are interested in the internal part of the body. So you have one system, which you think is your mind and your consciousness, is trying to keep your body safe in the external environment, and then your immune system is trying to keep your body working and safe from bugs and chemicals and trying to keep all of the... Um, cells that make up your organs operating in a particular way and homeostasis. And in that case, then, you've got this living ecosystem which is going through space, if you like, through nature and surviving. Now, when you, have, when you start to have chronic problems, there's a number of things that can cause chronic problems in your body as you age. Of course, these can be physical injury to organs. Uh, you know, if you get stabbed or shot or in a car accident or something, an organ may get scar tissue and won't function very well. So you can get these physical injuries, of course. And, and there are a gene dysfunctions, straight protein coding DNA functions, that problems that you'll have. And that could be that you don't produce enough LLAs, ISO-B enzymes in your liver, for example. 
And so if you start eating lots of fructose as you go get older, then you're going to be, um, well, you're going to have all sorts of problems coming up in your health. So we have those genetic disorders. And then we get chronic infections that get within your body, things like the um, herpes viruses, like your glandular fever or your cytomegalovirus, the human herpes 7, something like that. And once they get inside the body, um, they can produce super antigen responses and then you've got real health problems because the immune system then um, starts to have problems with these internal bugs. So the immune system st- itself is trying to keep a zoo um, in your body. Some are friendly, some aren't. And then you've got your mental attitudes to life, you, you know, um, for the circumstances that you come across. And these can create embedded autoimmune um, responses, which can give you poor health and become chronic health later in life. And then you have the, la- the last real problem about aging and being ill is having scarring to the immune system in its competency to focus on pathogens and chemicals. And this can come down to a number of things like your molecular mimicry or your cross-reactivity and down to the big one that's a lot of research been going on over the last 30 to 40 years is the epigenetic changes to gene function in your organs and in your immune nervous system. Um, um, So they're the the areas that I have been working on, um, well, gee whiz, for probably nearly 40 years, putting all of those things together, if you like, uh, about... um, how to stop people aging too quickly, how to remove chronic symptoms. And you, it's not by just uh, suppressing the symptoms using drugs. One of my things in life has been to try and teach people to be more competent in the ways that they can live so that they don't have to depend on a medical system, which is a pretty rough system sometimes. Um, and, and if you've got some life skills or you're competent in your life skills, and you understand a few things about how the body really works, um, then you can sidestep a lot of problems in life. Um, and I, I try to be try to teach people some of those things. So that's probably a, a pretty hairy way of describing what immunobiology is, but it's yeah. in this short time. Of course. And I think it's about really looking at how we can live a really long, healthy life, not just extend our lifespan with medicine, but have a low quality of life for some of the reasons that you have mentioned. And so what has been your experience in, I guess, the triggers for chronic illness? I'd like to speak more about epigenetics and our individual responses to plants as we age. So one of the reasons why this interests me a lot is we're hearing a lot about plants and, of course, there's the big trend of the carnivore diet. Before we talk about that trend specifically, I want to hear what you've learned about plants and how we can be quite individual with this information. Okay, look, okay, Steph. Um, I'll just take it from a biology-botany perspective because um, you had the evolution of life forms from single cells um, came into eventually into two life forms. One was a life form that rooted itself to the ground and, and moved very slowly or didn't move at all. They're the plants. And then you had a life form that moved and they were eventually came to your insect animals. So these are the two life forms that are on the planet now besides your single-celled animals. Now, it's quite interesting because a lot of people talk about um, chemicals like lectins, for example, there's over a quarter million lectins that they know about, and, and lectins in plants are used 
as really defence chemicals against, initially they were against viruses and bacteria, and then sometimes fungi initially, but then they expanded. Now, and the lectins that are used in animals are usually used for um, cellular communication. So if you go and eat, um, say, a cow, you eat the meat of a cow, there are no lectins in the tissue of the cow that are going to cause your body any upset. There are no toxic lectins. But when you start to eat a plant, then you'll come across um, a whole bunch of chemicals, including lectins, that can create problems for you. So let me take a step back again. So these plants, they had to defend themselves. So plants don't run away. When a, a lion tries to eat a, um, a gazelle, for example, the gazelle genetically has got these thin legs and can jump this way and that and quite often can get out of the road of a lion and that's why they survive. But plants don't move like that. So plants have got to defend themselves against virus, bacteria, fungi, insects, other plants that are trying to kill them and the larger animals that want to eat them for food. Plants aren't set up there for eating food except with some fruit. Um, uh, which I might talk about later on. So that really means that when an animal or something tries to eat plants, then it's got to be able to denature their defence chemicals um, so that it doesn't get sick or die. Um, and, and animals don't create their energy from the sun as plants do. So most of your animals have to eat things from plants and animals eat other animals. So we've got this situation that all plants on this planet, in the water and on land, are toxic to varying degrees. And besides the toxicity that they have um, uh, to not be killed is they use behaviours um, to isolate themselves. For example, if you go into nature, you won't find a whole group of lettuce clumped together. Part of their... Um, way of surviving is to only have isolated lettuce plants here and there and that reduces the amount of toxins that they have to use to defend themselves but when you come across plants that are out there everywhere for example the grains I, i'll talk a lot about the grains if you wish when you have a look at grains they can go to the horizon they'll just be kilometers of grains um, and so they're in your face and, and grains or grasses and grass seeds or grasses themselves have a, are highly defensive in their chemicals, not just one chemical, but a whole swag of chemicals because they've got to defend themselves against lots of insects that have got access to them, animals that have got access, um, viruses, fungi, all sorts of things. So they're really toxic, toxic plants, grasses in a broad range, whereas lettuces aren't. And when you think about it, um, you know, you, we have upwards of a half a million species of plants and over a million subspecies of plants on this planet. But humans will only eat a few hundred of these and the majority of these um, have to be cooked. So when you think of the number of plants that you eat, um, how many of them do you eat raw? Um, and that'll be a few plants that you can eat raw. Um, and most of them you will have to cook. And there's a whole lot of plants or parts of plants that you eat and you only have them as condiments. For example, pepper. Pepper's a lovely condiment. It spices up the foods. But if you put a bowl of pepper in front of you and you started to eat the whole lot, you're not going to get through that bowl of pepper um, before you find that you, you start to become really ill. Um, or you go and take raw kidney beans and you don't cook them. And you know what happens when you eat raw kidney beans. Um, 
the defence of glutens in the raw kidney beans can create a real problem and, and possibly make you really, really sick and possibly allow you to die. Um, however, by cooking, you'll denature the defence chemicals really quickly in kidney beans, but you don't denature all of the chemicals in all of the plants. That's why we're limited to only um, a few hundred plants out of all of these plants on this planet. There are just too many toxins and, and, and too many of the toxins we just can't deal with. And to bring it home to you, if you went into the bush and you found a mushroom with a purple top and orange spots, you don't grab it and bring it home and give to those people you love because you're not going to last very long. That's just an example of a food that we just, and we can't cook out those toxins in that. So we have to be very careful with certain foods. Now, you know, and you'd say, well, look, that's okay, but lots of people eat lots of foods and they don't get sick. Mm -hmm. But then you have to look at changes to your body. Um, and when a child's really young, say up to the age of two or three years of age, when you're cooking vegetables, you don't give the child rawish vegetables. You cook the buggery out of the vegetables. And what are you doing that for? You're denaturing certain protein and glycoprotein structures in those chemicals so that the child, the, the child doesn't get sick. And the same with granny. When she's pretty old, you'll find that she'll cook the buggery out of foods and she does that because she'll say, well, if I don't cook them really well, I'll start to get arthritis or I'll get headaches or I just, you know, I just can't digest the foods. And when you start looking at this, you go, well, okay, at certain ages, you have more difficulty with these chemicals. Well, why is that? Well, this has to do from, from the studies that I've done over the last um, 30 to 40 years. This has to do with changes in your adaptive immune function, not so much your innate immune function, but more to do with your adaptive immune function. Because at birth, the adaptive immune function um, is not coded to very much at all. And it builds up its coding from birth, first through the colostrum, picking up what mum's um, uh, T cells and B cells have been doing, and, um, and then building a library around bugs and chemicals that um, the adaptive immune, uh, the adapt, the innate immune system hasn't got a coding for, and this peaks from the age of about fourteen to thirty-five. So outside fourteen and thirty-five, our adaptive immune system will have problems. When you're young, it it, it isn't competent, and it has to get up to about teenage years to get competent. And after about the age of thirty-five, it scars. And when it scars, that means it's going to have problems with bugs and chemicals. And the, the problem is that the chemicals, the, the, the adaptive immune system mostly has problems with when it's scarred, uh, plant defence chemicals, because that's what most people are um, bringing into contact with their body, particularly if they don't cook them or if cooking them doesn't denature their defence chemicals. Now, have I confused you on that step or can I clarify? I'm not confused at all, but I have a number of questions to sort of bring it back into context for our listeners because I think it's a really fascinating space. But are you saying that all plants are toxic and we either don't eat them or we cook them to make them not toxic? That's principally, yes, that's the point. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at the... the um, definition of toxin, water can be toxic to you, air can be toxic to you in a certain volume. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, principally, everything you put into your body, every plant you put into your body will have defence chemicals that are toxins. Now, they may not be toxic to, to humans initially, they may be toxic to insects. 
for example, caffeine. Caffeine is a lectin and caffeine is used as in, in coffee, for example, um, as a repellent against insects. So you can turn around and say, well, I can drink plenty of coffee and I don't get poisoned. But if you start drinking, say, 20 cups of double-strength coffee a day, something's <laughs> going to happen to you. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and you see plenty of people who try and get off it then. They've got withdrawal symptoms and mm -hmm. everything. But coffee can be used as a medicine. Now, you understand herbs, Steph. And so your herbs, um, depending on what the herbs are, uh, have degrees of toxicity. And they're called medicines. And we can only take them in small doses. Yes. But they're, they're not... They're not um, they're not really condiments, but they can be in the condiment range, but they're not staple foods. They're not meals. And the, the plants that we have as meals, they're the plants that we cope best with when we're young and healthy um, and we can cook them, soak them, prepare them in certain ways that make them more palatable for us and we can digest them without um, becoming sick. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. So the plants that we code best with from an evolutionary standpoint, the first food that comes to mind, though, is a carrot, which we would often eat raw. How yeah. does that compare from a lectin point of view and that whole toxin or is it, again, dose-dependent like the caffeine example? Mm, well, you know, the carrots over the last who knows how many centuries um, have been farmed and farmed for sweeter taste. And just like tomatoes and, and most of the foods that we have these days and, and the fruits we have these days because I grew up in the 50s and, and fruits weren't like the fruits that you got by the time you got to your 70s and 80s and they were fairly tart and, and they had lots of seeds and, you know, they weren't all that palatable, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. So carrots, let's take carrots then. So if we went right back, um, I think carrots are a fairly benign food for humans because you can eat a raw carrot. Most people can eat a raw carrot. There's very few people who get um, allergy responses, and um, that's one to four allergy responses from carrots that I've come across in my career. So carrots are, are reasonably okay, particularly then if you um, take the skin off them. Um, but carrots themselves do have toxins. I have come across people who respond to carrots. Mm -hmm. um, and we do have responses. We have allergy responses, type 1 responses I've found occasionally with carrots, very, very occasionally. Um, type 3 responses have occurred with carrots as well. And also the fructose content of carrots with those people who have no elderlase B enzymes in their liver, that can create real liver problems as well. So carrots can be wonderful for most people and can produce lots of carbohydrates, lots of sugars um, to help along. And they've got some micronutrients that are really good and help people um, with their health. But for some people, carrots um, would be something that they'd have to keep away from. So rather than turn around and say carrots are a great food for every person, um, because of my, my background of working with people, I'd say, well, it depends on the individual. Potentially, they're a great food. But it depends on the individual and where they are with immune scarring, where they are with their neurological system, you know, how, at what age are they, etc. Yeah, so that's where, I mean, it always depends, doesn't it? The answer should really always be it depends, so it's taken in context. But so if the bracket of healthy, of a healthy immune system with minimal scars is 14 to 35 years of age, does that mean that anyone that's under the age of 14 should really only eat carrot that's cooked? 
oh, no, 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 it's not that at all. See, it develops. Okay. The immune system develops from birth, okay? And the first part is the colostrum, which comes in, which is a protein fat um, to help the baby through the first 24 hours. But that, but um, it also has um, activated T cells um, and sometimes B cells. Now, what happens as soon as the baby eats the colostrum, it's adaptive T cells, it's adaptive immune system goes from virtually no information about bugs or chemicals to having information about bugs or chemicals. And this is around the bugs and chemicals that up to six weeks before giving birth, mum's adaptive immune system has been focusing upon. And also it's the foods that mum's been eating during this last six weeks. And if the immune system has a problem with those foods and handled it really well, this goes through in the colostrum, and the baby's adaptive immune system immediately codes to that. And then the baby can have breast milk, for example, without getting a reaction to mum's breast milk. And at the same time, the immune system may start to code to, say, some viruses or or bacteria that are in the immediate environment that mum's immune system has been focusing on. So that means that gives added protection to the baby if it has the colostrum. Now, if it doesn't have the colostrum, it's more vulnerable Um, to coming down with infections and maybe dying. And this is what has been happening in third world countries until you get more and more of the medical system that we've got, where we look at hygiene and we can help um, babies through those early um, few days after being born if mum can't give um, breast milk. Mm. Mm. Okay. (laughs) So it's obviously really individual, um, but then if we look to the other sort of side of things with the lectin conversation that we're seeing very prevalent in this day and age, to me it seems like from what you've said there has seemed to be quite a big extrapolation of this comment that all plants are toxic, therefore I can only eat meat. Whereas I appreciate for some people, if they're quite unwell, like the autoimmune conditions that have really been quite significantly healed via a carnivore approach, do you think that there has been quite a bit of extrapolation and we're demonizing all plants unnecessarily? Definitely. Mm. Definitely. Look, just have common sense. There are people who get to 100 years of age in in the range of our potential longevity um, and they're quite healthy. And I've known a few of these people. Their, their health starts to fade down. But when you look at people like the Queen Mother who died a few years ago, well, she was 102 or something. Her health was pretty reasonable right up to the end. Our present Queen of England is, is pretty healthy as well, and she's getting up there. I know a few people in their mid-90s um, who come along and uh, to my clinic, and I had one amazing lady at 100 years of age. She came in, and she was from Latvia, and she came in and she said, You know, her eyes were starting to go and did I have anything to help her eyes out? Now, she had a normal diet, had no restrictions in her diet. So she's a type of lucky person who can eat all of the accepted human foods and and those are plants and her body denatures the toxins, her immune system handles everything normally, she ages gracefully and, and potentially gets the most out of life. But then you can have people who will pick up a glandular fever virus and, and have a bad reaction um, at the age of seven, eight, nine, ten years of age, and then they start to create these um, super antigen responses through their T-cells from the Epstein-Barr virus, triggering these CD8 T-cell responses, say, in the gut, 
when you've got um, something like a grain food passing through or a plant prolamine or something like that that gets down into the small intestine and it's not it's still biologically active it hasn't been broken down or it gets into the colon and then that creates um, a storm and starts destroying the uh, the epithelial tissue of the gut and and produces anything from ulcerative colitis Crohn's disease or if they've got a, a, a gene response a celiac um, disease or something like that and they're only 10 years of age and that's due to a plant trigger because the immune system has got a scar because a super antigen producing pathogen like the Epstein-Barr virus was able to get around the immune system and stage its own um, development within the body. So that person from the age of 10 until they die, maybe at 80 or 85 or even 90 if they make it, are going to have problems with particular plant triggers. So if they pull those plant triggers out of their diet, then the uh, you won't get those um, uh, superantigen responses happening on the wall of the gut, and they would have to restrict their foods. Now, essentially, this happens with the vast majority of people, um, but there are people who get through their whole of their life enjoying what plants can do, and there are others who can't do that. Um, and my job over the last 30 years has been to help people who've had particular chronic symptoms and figure out which of which group they are and, and, and help them do tests with these to figure out how they can shift a lifestyle. And, and so when people go to an extreme like a carnivore diet and they just immediately turn around and, and um, say that you shouldn't be eating plants, that's, that's not a very good approach at all. That's not understanding what's going on with the foods. Plants give so much entertainment for people. They fulfill the lives of people. We use plants in all our celebrations. We don't use eggs and meat for our celebrations, our birthday celebrations. We use, thing, use things from plants. We use the plant products. Um, plants have so much to offer for a full life. And so if you just reject plants and just take up meat and fat, okay, you can survive without these, but you're not um, having as full a life as I believe you should be able to have with plants. So... Um, I think it's a knee-jerk reaction and not really understanding what's happening within the body. Yeah, I tend to agree. So then I just want to understand your view on the people who it has really cured per se. I've heard of, you know, significant thyroid conditions, um, anxiety, depression, like quite a broad array of health conditions that these people believe to be, have, um, pardon me, solved by a carnivore diet. So What's your understanding there and um, what do you think a long-term plan is for these people? Because I don't believe they could possibly live on meat and eggs for the rest of their life. Yeah, it's, um, oh, well, well, from a psychological perspective, I, I don't think they'll be able to do this. I, I've done tens of thousands of cases with this and I know people eventually have to come back to plants to reassure themselves um, of themselves being human. Um, look, all, all autoimmune diseases have triggers. Mm. So there's a fairly broad statement. Um, the thing is, and most of the triggers, from my perspective of the testing that I've done, um, have been in plants because many people aren't in industry, aren't in commerce and aren't in laboratories and, and coming across particular chemicals. Autoimmune diseases are triggered by bugs on the one hand or pathogens, particular pathogens, 
um, pathogenic microbes, and on the other hand, by chemicals. It's only those two. They're the only things that can trigger it. Um, so when you remove chemicals out of the system, like chemicals in food, so many of your autoimmune responses will stop. Um, also, if you've got secondary responses like liver, kidney, lymph, bowel responses coming out of the immune responses, they also will stop. So a bunch of symptoms will also disappear because of that. Um, what will happen then is you'll have feedback changes in the autonomic nervous system, um, which will allow the brain to settle. On top of that, if you cut out all plants and plant products, you're not going to put fructose into your body. And there are a whole bunch of people who don't who've got hereditary fructose intolerance and they don't have a great amount of um, elderlase B enzymes in their liver, which will mean the fructose will go to the brain and if they don't have enough elderlase C enzymes in the brain, it's going to start frying the brain by treating opioid centres and then they're going to have mental issues, uh, mental emotional issues that come out of that. But that's a, a whole new discussion on that side. So what I'm saying is that, yes, when these people move away and pull out lots of plants out of their diet, um, there'll be a whole variety of symptoms right across the gamut of symptoms will stop for certain individuals, but that's not guaranteed for every individual. And what it comes down to is anecdotal responses. Now, you and I both have to work with anecdotal responses. I was trained in science, um, engineering and science, so, uh, and I spent a long time doing that, and I, I hope that I understand it after all these years. But I can't work... I can apply the rigor of science and research to individuals and I can get certain responses, but they're anecdotal responses. And when you look at lots of symptoms that are eliminated by pulling out particular types of plants, they're anecdotal. Um, you could have in a toxic dose coming from carrots, let's throw that in there, although, although I, I think it's very, very um, rare that this would happen, but you could get headaches out of them. I could be another person who came along and get a skin rash out of them, but that would be anecdotal. It, it, you can't say that go, there's going to be a universal um, set of symptoms that will come out of it until it gets to a really toxic level. Um, I hope, has, has that started to answer the question maybe, or has it opened up more and more questions? Yeah, I mean, there's always more questions. I think it's really fascinating that... Um yeah, like we're on the same page with regards to what's happening in that space. I just wonder what, whether you think it's something that they would do in a short-term situation, say, to down-regulate the immune response to start the healing process and hopefully then it looks like an elimination diet where they can start to bring foods back in and look at something that's more sustainable in the long term. That's my hope anyway. Yeah, I agree with that, Steph. Um, uh, when, when you're doing these sorts of trials, there's, um, there's, there's, there's a whole lot of trials that, to do with this. Um, the signature diet trials that, that we've done over the decades um, have uh, principally been around the problems with plants um, and, and people have to eliminate all plants, then have to bring them in at certain times because there's mm -hmm. delays and durations and combination factors of these particular chemicals. Sometimes the scarring for the immune system is irreversible, like it does occur over the age of 35. It's very, very difficult to reverse. Certain epigenetic uh, coding, if you like, um, for immune situations can be reversed, and we've done that using medicinal herbs 
um, to help out over the long term, just giving them just under a toxic dose for months, and this tends to re-trigger. So there's, there's lots of ways to do that. We can see in science now they're trying to use drugs to do the same sort of thing. But there, there, there will be some plants that people just can't eat because of the degree of scarring of the immune system or the combination of immune nervous system responses. And it's best for those people not to have those sorts of foods. Just like if you don't have the enzymes to in your liver to metabolize alcohol, it's best that you just don't drink alcohol once you know about it. Or if you don't have the enzymes for fructose, um, say the elderlase A enzymes in your small intestine, it's best not to over to take too many plants with high fructose because you'll end up with all sorts of bowel conditions, the fructose malabsorption conditions that people get. So this comes down to um, finding your limitations. And, and look, you'll find that some people just can't eat some plants, for example. Um, other plants, they can eat them if they cook them. Sometimes they might have to cook them twice. At other occasions, um, these will cycle. For example, the Epstein-Barr virus cycles over a four-week period. And when it's actually active in the body, then some people sometimes can't eat certain plants. Yeah. But when it's not active, when it cycles out, they can eat the plants. Um, at... at um, there are other conditions as well. When a person's tired or they're overstressed, then they can't eat particular plants, for example, because then um, their immune system's a bit more fragile, their nervous system's a bit more fragile, their body just doesn't respond as well. Or the case, which you may have heard, is some people have a problem with grains in Australia, and yet when they go over to Europe, they can have all the pasta and the breads and everything. <laughs> all the time. There. I hear this all the time. Yes, and, uh, yeah, and they... Um, they do really well over there. Well, you could turn around and say, well, you know, they're not under stress. They're on holidays. Um, that's a, that certainly works in most cases, but in a lot of cases there's stress. But when you come down to the grains and you know what's happened um, to the grains in Australia, how they've been modified um, by Farrah, William Farrah, from, 90, from 1888 or something to about 1910 and then by the CSIRO in the 1960s to produce more defensive chemicals against fungi and insects and humans, then you'll understand that people who are fragile with their immune system and it's on the point of scarring from a micro scar to getting a full scar, when they eat the grains in Australia, what they'll do is they'll start getting these symptoms and so they'll cut them down or cut them out. But then when they go overseas, because they're not so toxic, the grains from Europe and the Middle East, then they can um, eat them without feeling any of those symptoms they're on the on the borderline of, of making a micro scar into a full scar um is is that okay as a as a sort of an introduction into that yeah i think it's a really interesting point because I, I did want to talk to you about grains and i i often hear that and i think many of our listeners have lived and breathed that you know a lot of my clients you know won't eat gluten in australia and then they might go overseas and and be dying to have a baguette in paris and um sort of almost be willing to deal with the consequences, but then there aren't any because of the totally, I guess, you know, almost um, complete difference in the, in the grains that we see in Australia versus, in, versus Europe. So that is really fascinating. And I think um, firstly shows us that there's no one size fits all approach because so much of what you've been saying already today is about that very significant bio individuality that we see nutrition really comes down to 
Um, but let's talk more about grains. Just before we go any further, I wanted to clarify exactly what you were talking about. Obviously, wheat is one with the products that we've been discussing. Um, okay. But what else are you referring to in this instance? Okay, I use the, the botany definition of what a, a, a grain is, not the agronomy definition. Do you know the difference between the two? I don't. I would love to hear it. Okay, agronomy is the trading, the commercial trading for money of foods uh, of of seeds made into foods, and um, really, it's it's uh, not large seeds like beans. It's small seeds like grass seeds, like wheat and rice, etc. So any seed that is small enough and can be commercially traded in the definition of agronomy is a grain. So that means things like um, quinoa which is a pseudo-cereal from the rhubarb family. Um, it looks like a grain. Um, so according to agronomy, it is a grain. But according to botany, it's not a grass. It's not a grass seed. It's got nothing to do with the cereal crops. It's not a grain. I follow the, the botany definition of that. So there are many seeds out there that I would not call a grain, whereas uh other people would call them grains. Um, I call um, uh, quinoa uh, a pseudo-cereal. It's not a grain, um, whereas I'd call wheat a grain and, and rice is a grain and corn is a grain, etc. and oats is a grain. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what do you think are the long-term advantages of grain-free living or is it quite individual again? Again, it's individual. You see people make it to 100 years of age and um, they, they're still eating grains. In fact, you'll get those people who've got celiac genes, can get to 100 years of age, still have grains every day, have wheat every day, and have not triggered any um, immune responses like the celiac response. So we've got those sorts of people. And then we have the opposite of those that get problems when they're fairly young. So, okay, there's, there's a whole swag of this, and people have to realise where they are on this spectrum. But grains themselves have an array of toxins. When you look at uh, gluten, gluten um, is made up of, your um your peptides your 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 there's over 50 peptides make a a protein like gluten or i think it's something like uh gee whiz i'm I'm not sure of the exact number but there is something like golly uh is it 430 odd peptides that make up gluten um um the thing is that most of the work has been done on gliadin um which is linked up to celiac disease but lots of these prolamins, these, these um, small proteins, are hooked up with immune conditions and um, the grains themselves have such an array of these proteins that if we continually have them, we put our bodies at risk. If we have them all the time, day in, day out, week in, week out, we have the risk that under certain environmental conditions of high stress and other bugs getting into our body and getting injured and a whole bunch of things happening that these things can create um, micro scarring and then full scarring for the immune system. So, so grains are a a great source of carbohydrates, um, not very much micronutrition, but they keep people alive and they can be stored indefinitely in silos. You keep them dry and they last forever. And that was the thing that um, attracted uh, people in the Middle East uh, 12 to 14,000 years ago in ways to survive. We, we know about that stuff. Um, but I think that there, there, there are too many illnesses hooked up 
to grains for them really to be um, um, something that you should have every season. Remember, we're, we're animals that had seasonal diets originally, except for your, your meats and fats, which we had all year. We, the plants were seasonal and genetically were set up for seasonal plants. And I experienced that as a boy as seasonal plants. Now everything's available all the time. And I think that creates a potential problem. Yeah. Again, it's yeah. the overconsumption and then it's coming back to how different the proteins look in this day and age. Like the other comparison is, you know, the wheat that our or the grains that our great grandmother ate were very different to that which we're eating in 2019. So keeping yeah. that perspective, yeah. I think, is really important. But tell me more about your project, Deke's Health Food, and, and where that started and, and the initial reasons for starting that company. Okay. Okay, look, um, it, it, I'll take it back to the late um, 1980s when I was doing my starting up my clinical career. I was a biologist. So I wasn't a naturopath, so I wasn't trained to be a clinician, and all I had was my research background, and I just applied that to individual problems, and it worked really, really well. Um, and I had a, a booming business that's continued all of this time. But what I had to look at, because I'm an ecologist in many ways, I had to look at a number of variable, um, a number of factors that came in. And, and throughout the 90s, I did several thousand case studies to figure out what were the major factors that were scarring the immune system. This is epigenetically or just creating problems with communication problems in the immune, immune nervous system. And... So there were nine things eventually I looked at from stress, poor sleep quality, the, the chemicals in plants, the pathogens that are in the body, uh, the lack of exercise, the toxins that come in, even things like vaccination, nutrition and um, uh, geopathic things, things of the way you live. So I put all these together and started doing trials with people and I did thousands of these and they eventually came out as a general hierarchy um, for immune illnesses. And in terms of the chemicals, the ones that came out on top, um, and I've written this up in a book that I published in the 1990s called No More Chronic Fatigue, which was about 4,000 case studies that I did, um, and how cereal crops or cereals, all grains, not just gluten-containing grains, but all grains had effect on the immune systems of people and how viruses like the glandular fever viruses um, uh, interacted and you, you had this mimicry response that was occurring uh, through these two, and 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 then how your stress components came on top, and a lack of sleep, etc. And grains came up as one of those big factors of all the plants out there, the the most problematic of plants for the most people with chronic immune-related conditions. So I had these tens of thousands of studies. Now I can remember there was a lady working for me. I had I had several staff that were working for me, and one lady called Desi Visavitas. She was so concerned with these people coming in because they would do their own case studies, which would be with and without trials, over six weeks to um, pull out plants and put them back in and use graphs and controls. And once they found out that they couldn't take rice or corn or wheat or any grains at all, their problem was, well, what were they going to have? <laughs> um, they liked to have bread. They liked to have pasta and cakes. What were they going to do? And her throwaway line was, well, why don't we get um, mothers... Um, to bake breads and we can give them to these people. And that sort of just clicked with me and I thought, well, nobody's doing grain-free products in this world. Gluten-free products were just starting to um, uh, be heard around the place. 
And um, I thought, well, maybe we can do something about this because um, people who've got celiac disease will also have a problem with rice and corn, but it will be at an anecdotal level and it won't probably be around the villi of the small intestine. It'll be in their skin, it'll be in their brain, their nerves, somewhere else. There'll be other responses that, parallel responses that come up. That's what I've found over the years. So before the paleo diet got going or anything like that, um, this sort of stuff was out there and there were thousands of trials going. And I was talking to Rob. He was a good friend of mine. We'd been to India together and we did training and all sorts of things together in, in the martial arts. And I was talking to him and he and his wife, Teresa, um, and they said, well, why don't we help the community out by creating a grain-free bakery? Mm-hmm. Well, problems were there, of course, because what do you make it out of? And so it took probably two and a half years of experimentation um, out of other plant products, anything from potato, quinoa, tapioca, all sorts of plants that I had looked at my data and found out which ones weren't too bad in general. So the idea was to create a bunch of um, breads and cakes or bakery products to keep people aligned with their heritage because most people in Australia um, have have a bakery heritage, if you like, um, where they, they um, have been brought up on bakery f- foods and a lot of people miss those foods once they do the trials. Um, so to, to help people have that, to keep their heritage going, um, grain-free bakery products. Well, as well as that, then they were going to be, well, no uh, additives into them, no preservatives. We'll make this a true health product. Well, that was difficult to do. But eventually, and it, it, it took all this research, eventually we got these breads going and then we did cakes and then we did oh, dozens and dozens of bakery products, grain-free bakery products, and we had launched the bakery by about, must have been 2004 or five by that stage after these two and a half years of trying to figure out how to do this stuff. And um, <laughs> we, we've, we've had this bakery now for a long time trying to help these people out. Oh, we do help people out. Um, now, I would have missed lots of, um, lots of answers to your question, Steph, so um, that's a sort of a broad view of, of how it came about. It, it was just through experimentation and knowing that there was a percentage of people in our community that knew they couldn't take rice and corn, couldn't take gluten-free products because they had done trials. It's not that they listened to anyone. They did their own trials and knew they couldn't take them and wanted a product um, that they could take and not suffer further deterioration of their health. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, something that's more nutritious than just replacing one carbohydrate with another. Um, I think that, yeah, it's really fascinating that you guys started Deke's Health Foods so long ago now and, and it wasn't when paleo was popular and it wasn't when grain free was popular and and now we've seen a huge boom in in these movements and in these dietary preferences and i'd be really interested just to hear briefly um what your experience has been in more recent times with i believe a lot more people moving to either a lower grain or grain free life well okay um okay there are lots of problems around the grains, um, there, there are lots of people um, who are suggesting um, that their family members or if, if they're a practitioner that some of their clients should go off grains. Um, 
the problem is if you just tell people to do that and they don't do, do their trials, they don't understand delays, durations, combination factors that come in. For example, if it's a type 3 allergy response that your body has got um, to particular chemicals in the grains, you may find that you eat the grains on Saturday night, but you won't get your symptoms for seven, eight, nine days. And a lot of people think it's the next day um, that you're going to get your symptoms or not get your symptoms. So if you don't understand that that's a type 3 allergy response and you haven't done your own graphing to this, um, then you could eat the grains and then the next day you think, well, I'm okay, I've got no reaction, so I'll start taking them. And then four or five days later you get your headaches and something else is happening to you um, and you don't relate it to the food that you had earlier. And so what I'm saying is that because there are many people who don't really understand what the immune system and nervous system do around these chemicals in grains, they're giving a lot of misadvice or not complete advice to people. Um, so there, there are, there. I would like people to be um, to actually do trials around these to really understand, or I'd like the information to get out there further that it's not just a simple thing. You just can't say to people, oh, go off the grains. Look, there are people who, when they stop eating the grains, they get absolutely no change to their symptoms for six weeks, absolutely none, and then they'll start to get the change. There are long durations in some people, not everyone. I think it's about, it's between 40 and 50% of people within seven days will get a change, the beginnings of change to some symptoms. It won't get rid of them totally, but at least then they go, ah, oh, I'm starting to get better. Well, that's pretty quick. That's a week. Um, but if it goes on for three weeks and they only do a one week where they pull it out and they go, look, I've got no changes here. It isn't the grains at all. It's got to be something else. Well, they do themselves a disservice. So there are many people out there who are saying, well, cut down the grains. But these are micro intolerances that occur with certain problems. These, these aren't volume based. And this is another problem. So if you're a celiac and you respond to five parts per million in Australian grains, um, you can go over to Europe and they've got, well, um, 15 parts per million. So you can eat the grains over there, a certain volume, and you can get away with it. But in Australia, you can't do that. You take celiac in Australia takes half a grain of wheat and they can have a month of symptoms from half a grain of wheat. So in many cases, it's not volume-based when you're looking at grains. Knowing this, when we set up the Deeks factory, so we have to make sure that absolutely no cereals um, come on to the um, factory at all and we have positive pressure to, to make sure that nothing blows in. With, if you're going to produce a grain-free product, you can't produce a grain-free product in factories where there can be cross-contamination because they're doing gluten-free in one part and they're doing grain-free in another part or normal breads in another part. Mm. Um, you, can get, you can get autoimmune diseases like baker's asthma where you can walk into a bakery if you're one of these people and you can breathe the air for a few minutes and you can trigger um, an immune response in your lungs, which is likely to kill you um, as, as the mucus builds, as the IgA response builds up. So there are lots of things that you've got to look out for if you're going to try and pull grains out um, or you, you're going to um, muck around with the grains. And, and it does lead to a lot of grief. And, and I, I've had to go through that over the thousands of people that I've worked with over the years to try and educate them to this. Um, and if people can't be disciplined with this, they're best using drugs or they're use, best using herbs or have therapies or some other way to support them if they can't remove 
um, totally 100% grains if they want to go on a, a sort of reduced grain diet or a grain-free diet. Yes. I mean, look, you're just a wealth of knowledge and I really appreciate the the passion that you have in, in helping people understand their symptoms from a natural angle. And of course, that that very you know, that very individual response to nutrition and looking after our long-term health so that we are aging in such a beautiful way. I'd love for you to direct us to where we can learn more for those that would either like to work with you or hear more about Deke's Health Foods. Oh, okay. You can, um, you can just look up my name, uh, Bill Giles, and it'll come up on the internet. Uh, for the clinics that I've got. But otherwise, Deeks, D-W-K-S, if you just put that in, that's in Rob D. Costella. And um, that's if you wanted to sample the products. They're really tasty products. We spent a lot of time trying to work with them to make sure they were really palatable. No sugars, no additives, no preservatives. Um, um, and they can be mainly delivered around Canberra. We have a problem in the state, of course, with delivery with no preservatives. But look up Deeks um, and... Uh, um, you can get information from them, you can contact the factory, you can talk to people in Deets as well if you were thinking of um, grain-free products. Okay, Steph? Beautiful. Thank you so okay. much, Bill. It was so great to have you on the show and well, we're really yeah. appreciative of your time. And, look, lovely to talk to you, Steph. Um, yeah, it was really good. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Reel. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.